To me, one of the most interesting books in the Bible is the Song of Solomon. It has eight chapters in it, and it's a beautiful love story. It's between a man and a woman, between a bridegroom and a bride. And I believe that it's teaching us a lot of lessons concerning the love of Christ to his people, and his people to him, but especially the church, the attitude that the church ought to have concerning the favor and love and grace of Christ. We see in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, the Song of Solomon, okay, the Song of Songs of Solomon. We're told in 1 Kings 4 and 32 that Solomon wrote a thousand and five songs, but this is the Song of Songs. He also wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Solomon wrote three books, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon. They're all three distinct and different. The Apostle Paul probably wrote 14 books, and most of those are very similar. Hebrews is different, Philemon is different, but the church letters, ministerial letters, are all very, very similar. But not so with Solomon. The Jews call the book of the Song of Solomon the holiest of the holy. You know, the tabernacle, as you uh, would walk into the, uh, through the veil into the outer court. It had a you know, rectangle, it had a uh, surrounding, and then you walk to the outer court, and then inside you had the tabernacle proper. And in the outer court, you had the uh, altar, burnt sacrifices, and the uh, brazen altar, and the brazen laver. Then you go into the tabernacle proper, which was called the holy place, and then there was another curtain, you went in that, and it was called the holiest of the holies or the holiest. And so that's what they're calling the Song of Solomon. Jews are the, the holiest of the holy, of the three books that Solomon wrote. Of course, all three were divine inspiration. All three are very valuable and beneficial to the Lord's people. The Song of Solomon is a book that's really for mature, uh, spiritual-minded people. It's not a book to be taken in a carnal sense, in a carnal way. It's not a book, if you just started reading the Bible, you'd say, well, I think I'll read the Song of Solomon, and you'd read it. You probably wouldn't get a whole lot out of it, although you, would be able, you should be able to detect that the people in, in consideration in this song really, truly are committed to one another and love one another dearly. So this is a Song of, Sol a song of Songs by Solomon. Out of the thousand five songs that he wrote, only one made it into the Bible, and it made it there by divine inspiration. All the other songs, I'm sure, probably were good, beneficial maybe in some way or another, but this one here was given with divine inspiration. God is actually the author of this song, although they used Solomon to pin it down and to write it. In verse 2 it says, Kiss me with thy mouth. With the ki kiss me with the kisses of thy mouth. It says, uh, Because thy, thy love is better than wine. Kiss me... Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Now I think as you read this, it sets the tone for the entire book. In the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 1, you'll find where the bridegroom gives a description of the bride, unlike any description I've ever heard. Karen's oldest sister, Susan, one time had a young man that wanted to come see her and he came by and she wasn't there and her daddy was telling everybody about it and they said, well, what did he look like, daddy? And he said, well, he, he was nice. Yeah, but daddy, what, what did he look like? Well, 
Well, he was just, he was really nice. <laughs> That's how he described him. But in chapter 4, you're going to find where Solomon, writing as the bridegroom to the bride, speaks about her eyes like being the eyes of doves. And her hair like the hair of goats. And her teeth like the teeth of sheep. Now, if you've got a son, he comes home, he says, uh, you know, I met a young lady today, and you say, well, describe her to him. And he starts describing her like that. You're probably going to shake your head and say, well, what's wrong with you, son? You're telling me her teeth look like the teeth of sheep? Yes. And her hair is like goat's hair. And, and her uh, lips are like a thread of scarlet. And her neck's like the Tower of David. So forth and so on. This is the way he describes her. Well, see, there's a lot of metaphors in this, in this book. And you've got to study this book very diligently to be able to understand why he would describe the bride in such language as this. But in verse 7, he says this about her. He says, Thou art fair, my love, my dove. Thou art altogether lovely. There is no spot in thee. When he got through describing her, there was no blemish. There was no spot whatsoever. He saw her in perfection. And then you come to the fifth chapter of the Song of Solomon. Begin about verse 16, you're going to find where she describes him. It says he's the chiefest among 10,000. His head's like the most fine gold. Now you've got a daughter, and she comes home and says, I met this young man. You say, well, describe him to me. And she starts describing him like she describes her bridegroom here. A head of most fine gold, eyes like, also like the eyes of doves. His cheeks like a bed of spices. Etc. His hands are like uh, gold and set in uh, so, uh, his his legs like marble set in fine uh, sockets of, of gold. Etc. His his counts like the counts of Lebanon and so forth and so on. I've just given you a, a brief description here. But it ends up like this. He said, "But thou art altogether lovely. She saw no blemish in him. She found no fault in him. She saw no defects in him." She saw him in perfection. And I think that's the way husbands ought to see their wives and wives their husbands uh, in your marriages. We all realize we're not perfect. We all realize we have our imperfections. We all realize we have our blemishes. We all realize we have our defects. At least I hope we do. Because if you don't, <laughs> I don't know what world you're living in. Okay? But we should see one another in a way that we overlook those imperfections and those defects and those blemishes. But when the bridegroom saw his bride, he saw her as without spot. When she saw him, he was altogether lovely. No defects, no blemishes whatsoever. So this is the song of songs right here. Even Solomon's. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Notice she doesn't actually give him a name here. It says, let him kiss me. I believe this tells me that her thoughts are so altogether on him. Her heart was so fixed upon him. She didn't feel like she had to actually, you know, mention his name per se. Just, just like Mary Magdalene, for example. When she came to the, in the 20th chapter of John, she comes to the grave of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to an empty sepulcher. And Christ appears to her, but she doesn't recognize him, and she thinks he's the gardener. She says to, to the gardener, she thinks, tell me where you have borne him, not Jesus, but him, and I will come and take him. 
She didn't mention Jesus by name. Her love and devotion was so great for him, she didn't feel like she had to actually say his name. She said, if you have borne him, tell me where he's at. I will come and take him. She loved him dearly. And we find here that the one speaking loves, the one she's speaking to very, very dearly. I believe this is, speaking, this is language coming from one who has had prior experience with the person that's under consideration. You know, in the 85th Psalm, verses 6 and 7, David makes this request. He says, Lord, wilt thou not revive us again, that we might rejoice in thee? That tells me David knew the benefit of a revival, and that he experienced revival in the past, and he felt a need of revival in the present. How about you? I'll tell you this. Every, every time we meet here, every Lord's Day, I look forward for a revival. I need reviving. After spending six days out here in this world in which we're living, I need reviving. And I pray for revival every Lord's Day. Every time we meet in the worship service of God, I'm looking for a revival. I'm not looking for a resurrection meeting. We're not here to try to raise anybody from the dead. And I don't mean from the grave. I, I'm talking about we're not here to try to raise somebody from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ. Only God can do that. So we're not looking for a resurrection meeting. We're looking for a revival meeting. He knew the benefit of a revival. In the 18th chapter of Luke, you find where a Pharisee and a publican went to the temple to pray. And the publican smote himself upon the breast and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I believe the publican understood the benefits of mercy. I believe he'd been the recipient of mercy in times past. He felt like he needed mercy at the present time. In contrast to the prayer of the Pharisee who said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men are. Even this publican over here. I, I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an unjust man, etc., etc." The Lord said the publican went down his house justified rather than the Pharisee. I believe the publican understood something about the need of mercy. And he saw himself to be a great sinner. And so we find here where the bride, I believe, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking about the churches of men. There's been thousands and thousands of churches started by men since the days of Christ. But I'm talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was established by Jesus himself 2,000 years ago. She's speaking here and says, let him kiss me. This is, see how personal this is. Let him kiss me with the kisses of thy mouth. She speaks about the kisses from the mouth of the one that she loves so dearly. She said it's altogether lovely. When you read that description of him in chapter 5, you'll find where she says his lips are like sweet-smelling myrrh. That's an interesting description. And it says his mouth is most sweet. In John 7, 46, it said concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, Never man spake like this man spake. And in Luke chapter 4, when the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the synagogue and speaks from Isaiah chapter 61, when he gets through and closes the book, the Bible says the people wondered, they wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. She said, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For thy love is sweeter than wine, better than wine. Now, kisses is better than wine. Now, here she talks about his love. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for thy love. 
She could have just said for love, but she said, no, thy love. Talking about the specific love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to take a look at a few words that Christ spoke about this in the last part of John chapter 17. In John 17, we find where the Lord prays to the Heavenly Father. This is the Lord's prayer here. Most people call the Lord's prayer the one back in Matthew chapter 6 when the Lord taught his disciples how to pray. That was not a prayer he prayed. He gave them the model prayer that got us in our prayer life. But in John 17, the Lord is praying. And the Lord's praying to the Father. And he starts off by speaking to the Father. He ends by speaking to the Father. But as we come to the last four verses of the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I and them and thou and me that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know thou hast sent me, and thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now notice this here. He says, I and them, and them and me, that they may be perfect in one. Now, if, if God is in Christ, and Christ is in the, the children of God, that means inside of us we have both Christ and the Father. We have them both inside of us. That the world may know thou hast sent me, and thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. He said, Father, you've loved them just like you love me. Well, that's an amazing statement to me. Has there ever been any doubt that the Father loved the Son? Jesus said, or the Father said to Jesus when he was baptized, this is my beloved Son whom I'm well pleased. He said on the mountain of transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. My beloved Son, the Son of my love. Jesus said, Thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And I will that thou be with them, that, that where I am they may be with me also. Behold my glory, as thou hast loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice that. When did God love you? Before the foundation of the world. If he loved you before the foundation of the world, then we understand what John was talking about in 1 John 4 19. We love him because he first loved us. I can assure you as she expresses her love to the, to the bridegroom here in this verse, she's not the first one to love. He was the first one to love. He loved her and then she loved him. His love is a superior love. What if the Lord loved us like we love him? How would you feel like, what would you think about that? If the Lord loved us like we love him, at least as we show that we love him, what do you think about that? Would, you, would we be in trouble? Aren't you glad his love is far superior to us than our love is to him? He loved us before the foundation of the world, and he loved us as God loved his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus prays that where he's at, that they'd be with him and, and see his glory. And then the very last verse of this prayer, he said, I have declared thy name unto them, and I will declare that the love that you, that you have and me may be in them. <laughs> Notice that again. He's speaking specifically of the love of the Father. As it was in him, it would also be in them. And he loved them as he loved the Son. He loved the Son before the foundation of the world. That's how Jesus includes this prayer here, speaking about those whom the Father gave. Now, I always like to speak about the first part of this prayer. But I love the way it ends, too. In the first part of this prayer, he says, Father, glorify thy Son, he might also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, and he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given unto him. 
language couldn't be clearer, couldn't be plainer. He says, Father, glorify thy Son. He might also glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should do what? Give, not offer, but give eternal life to who? To as many as thou hast given unto him. And this is life eternal. They might know thee as the only true and living God and thy Son Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's a wonderful way to start a prayer. I love to start off reading that prayer that, that way, but I, I just got paying attention to the end of the prayer. You know, how he speaks about that, the love of, the, of God, thy love, that love is under consideration right here. Now let's go to the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul is going to conclude this third chapter with a prayer. Beginning in verse 14. He's going to conclude his writings uh, of, the, of the first three chapters with a prayer. He said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He said, There's, God has a family in heaven and also in earth, and the whole family is named. And I bow my knee unto God the Father, of whom the whole family of God is named, both in heaven and also in earth. Part of God's family is in heaven right now, and part of God's family is on this earth. We're not together yet, but one day we shall be. Right? Then he says that the faith of Christ, or that, uh, you know, that the, uh, uh, your faith in Christ might dwell in thee, that thou might comprehend with all saints what is the depth and the length and the height and the breadth of the love of God that you may know the love of God. Paul's very interested in you knowing something about the love of God. Now, you can look at this in two or three different ways. We could, that you may know the love of God from the standpoint where it originated, where it came to you from. That you might know the love of God from the standpoint of how we're to love God's people, how we're to love one another. But he says here that we might be rooted and grounded in love. It's very important that we be rooted in love. Very important that we be grounded in love. That means to be upright and to be stable. You know, when you plant a shrub or a tree, uh, if you want that tree or shrub to do very well, you, you need to do several things in the beginning. And one is you need to dig the hole that's going to go in deep enough. It needs to have a circumference wide enough. And then before you put it in there, you need to put a little plant food, fertilizer, whatever in there, and you plant it in there, and you water it one thing, because you want to give that plant, that shrub, that tree the best opportunity it can to grow and be healthy, right? Well, the Lord's people need to be rooted and grounded in love, in the definition of love, in the origin of love, in God's description in His Word concerning His love. We need to be rooted and grounded in it that we might know the love of Christ. The love of Christ has four dimensions to it. We live in a two or three dimensional world, but the love of God has four dimensions to it. It has a breadth. What in the world does that mean? I believe it reaches as far back as it needs to to embrace the first Arab promise, which I think was Adam. And it reached all the way this way to the last Arab promise was born in this world, whoever that might be. And the world will not end until the last Arab promise, which I mean the last elect child of grace, is conceived in its mother's womb, and then it's born of the Spirit before it passes, this world, passes away in this world. And then after that, there'll really be no need for God to allow this world to continue any longer, as far as I know. But then he hadn't told me that. 
But I know it won't end before that happens. That's how broad the love of God is. And how deep is the love of God? It's deep enough, my friends, to reach all the way into a mother's womb and quicken a child that's in is going to be by abortion. You know, you understand we live in a world where it's against the law to kill snakes. It's against the law to kill hummingbirds. It's against the law to kill bees. I'm not against that, except for the snakes. You know. But it's against the law to kill these animals, but it's not against the law to kill a baby. What a weird world we're living in. How mixed up can people be? How mixed up can we possibly be? But I can tell you this, that God's love has a depth to it and he can reach all the way down into the womb of that mother before the surgeon ever gets there and born into the Spirit of God and take its little spirit and soul right into glory. It's deep enough to reach an Apostle Paul when he saw of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. Deep enough to reach a thief hanging upon a cross. Deep enough to reach you. Deep enough to reach me. That's pretty, that's pretty deep. And the length of God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. And the height of it, well, it, it, it's as high as heaven is itself. That's where God is. His dwelling place is heaven. That's where our love originated with God Almighty. He's in glory. And Paul wants you to be rooted and grounded in love to understand the love of God. It has four dimensions to it. To have an understanding of it. He said, then he says, for, not, he says, um, for this passeth knowledge. <laughs> in other words, what he's saying here is we'll never know the, to the fullest extent of God's love till we get to glory. But before we get there, the more we know about it, the happier we're going to be, the more God's going to be honored and glorified. So what do we know about the love of God? Well, we know it's from everlasting to everlasting. Jeremiah 31, 3, For I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That's a pretty good start to know that God's love is everlasting. To know that God's love never has an end to it. John chapter 13, verse 1, it said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his time had come to part out of this world to be with the Father, he loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. Paul tells us in Romans 8 and 35, he asked the question, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Then he gives us a list of things that we're going to face in life, trials, tribulations, nakedness, pearls, and sword, etc., etc. He said, Nay, and all these things are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We need a knowledge of the inseparable love of God. We need a knowledge that God's love is from everlasting to everlasting, and God's love will never end. He loved them all the way to the end. 2 Corinthians 5 and 14, Paul says, For the love of Christ constraineth me. It's a constraining love. For we thus judge, if one died for all, then all were dead. And he died for all, that they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto Christ who died for them and rose again. Why should I live unto Christ? Because he died for me. Why should I try to live my life for Christ? Because he rose for me. The love of Christ constraineth us. That word constrain is a very powerful word. Shows persuasion, just like those two on the road to Emmaus. They constrained Christ to stay with them when they came along toward the end of the day. 
They persuaded him. The love of Christ persuades me. The love of Christ constrains me. And I thus judge, if one died for all, why did he die for all? Because all were dead. Now, the word all, he doesn't have in consideration all humanity, has reference to the elect family of God. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. We had to have somebody represent us. And the fact that he died for all, that they which live, they should henceforth not live under ourselves, but in God or Christ who died for us and rose again. In the fifth chapter of Romans, verse 5, Paul says, For tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Notice, he say the love of God is placed in our hearts. It is, but it's shed abroad. Shed love because of shed blood. It's shed abroad in our hearts. For, right, for scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure would a good man, some would even dare to die. But God committed his love toward us. Now here's the commending love of God. God committed his love to us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there's his constraining love, his commending love, his shed love, his everlasting love, his inseparable love. In 1 John 3 and 16, you know people like to really work on John 3, 16. I love that verse, but how about 1 John 3, 16? Hereby we perceive the love of God, that he laid down his life for us, therefore we shall lay down our lives for the brethren. Do you perceive the love of God in that? Do you perceive the love of God that His Son will lay down His life for us? It's important that we do if we're going to be knowledgeable about it, if we're going to be rooted and grounded in the love of God. We need to perceive the love of God. We need to see the constraining love of God. We need to see the commending love of God. We need to see the everlasting love of God. 1 John 4 and 7 John's going to tell us several things in these seven, verses 7 through 10 about the love of God is very important. He's going to say in verse 7, he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth, loveth God and knoweth God, but he that loveth not, knoweth not God, because God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth, knoweth God and loveth God, but he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Herein was, God, the, herein was manifested the love of God that God sent His Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Here's love defined. Herein is love. That God sent His only begotten Son into this world to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means atonement. It's used twice, but John in, his, in 1 John means atonement. You know, when Noah built the ark under God's commandment, God's instructions, we find where the, uh, he pitched it within and without. And that word that uh, translated pitch literally means propitiation. And then God closed the door. And that door could not be opened at that point until the time come for God to open that door. So here we have love defined. Oh, I missed this. Hearing his, hearing his love. Not that we loved him. He, Paul, John wants you to understand. That's not what the love of God is. Not you loving God and him deciding to love you. Hearing his love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and gave his son. Sent his son in this world to be the propitiation for our sin. To pay the sin debt because outside of Christ the debt couldn't be paid. 
You say, well, if I go to this bank, they won't leave me the money. I'll go to this and maybe they will. Well, I'm going to tell you this. Only one way this debt's going to be paid, and that's through the blood of Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. We find the bridegroom saying, let him kiss me with a kiss of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. We're talking about God's love is better than wine. I'll, I'll, Lord, we're going to say a little something about that in a minute. When we go back to Paul's closing prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, that you might be rooted and grounded in love, and that you may comprehend the depth, the length, the height, and the um, breadth, length, height, and depth of his love. You might comprehend it. It's important for us to comprehend that love. That you may know the love of Christ that passeth knowledge. And that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? That you might know the love of Christ that passeth knowledge. It just simply means God's love passes the greatest amount of knowledge we'll ever have about God's love. His love is going to go further than that. And then John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. The degree of God's love. She's let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. How is it better than wine? It's better than wine from the standpoint of the antiquity of it. Now, I understand that the older the wine is, usually the better it is, right? Wine gets better with age, so they say. I won't forget, we went to California and we went to the winery and, uh, just to see how it was all made, and, and one man gave a... Uh, a long detailed uh, description how the, all the wine in this big vat had been there for several years and how it was made one thing and another and when he got through uh, uh, it was pretty impressive when he got through I said well you know I, back in Georgia I know how they make wine they uh, put it in a put it in a gallon jar and they burnt so many feet down the ground and they put so much sugar with the grapes one thing and another in 90 days they dig it up and they got great wine he didn't even crack a smile <laughs> He didn't even crack a smile, but that's the truth. <laughs> I got some uh, good friends down in Georgia. When I go down and preach, they always want me to come home with a bottle of wine. I don't know why they think I drink wine. Because basically I don't. But if I'm going to, that's the best there is. It's really good and it's free. <laughs> and that's how they make it. Now, the important thing about making that way is you've got to remember where he buried it. I have heard stories where they dug up the whole backyard <laughs> trying to find it because they couldn't remember where they put it. But anyway, the older wine is, supposedly the better it is. How old is the love of God? Well, if you've been paying good attention, I've already given you that answer. The love of God goes back before the foundation of the world. No wine ever goes back that far. It goes back before the foundation of the world. It originated in glory. It originated with the Father. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And it endures. It endures. Once again, the Lord loves his people all the way to the end, right? It endures. And the degree of his love. In John chapter 15, verse 13, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Greater love hath no man than this, the man lay down his life for his friends. That's why it's better than wine. He says, there's no greater love than that, than a man lay down his life for his friends. The Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for his friends. 
from the pureness of it. You know, sometimes wine is made, it has dregs in the bottom of it, one thing and another. May not be 100% pure, whatever, but the love of God is pure, completely pure. I like to read about that river over here in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 1. He says, he showed me a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God. Everything about God is pure. His word is pure. Psalms 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. I shall keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them for the generation forever. The words of the Lord are pure. His love is pure. It's a pure river of water. It proceeds all the way down from the throne of God. Everybody might not be able to afford wine. But when it comes to the love of God, that's not a problem. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, he says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Those are three things under consideration here. Those, those that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Well, you come to the waters to satisfy your thirst. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. All three of these should make us think of the benefits and the blessings of the gospel. Proverbs 25, 25, as cold waters are to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. There's nothing more refreshing than a, a glass of cold water. If you're really hot, tired, and thirsty, it'll satisfy your thirst any better than that. And milk, it is a, it's a miracle food, as far as I'm concerned, just a miracle food. Especially for babies. How many times a baby's born in this world, and they just, the mother nurses them for several months, long time, and the baby grows and is healthy and one thing and another. And when Karen uh, was doing that, one of our children, she came home with a doctor's report speaking about uh, uh, how the, you know, thankful we were that he got a good report. Said, and just think, all it's had is mother's milk. Said, That's all it needs. That's God's way. That's God's manner. It is the most complete food that there is. It provides everything that a little baby needs to stay healthy and to grow and develop. And that's the way it is with the gospel. And then wine is a stimulant. And the gospel ought to stimulate us. The gospel ought to educate us. It ought to edify us and strengthen us in the heart. And then it ought to kind of give us a little swift kick to motivate us. <laughs> the gospel, is, uh, the wine is a stimulant. But too much wine is unhealthy for you. That's why Paul told Timothy, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. That's why it says in the qualification of a minister and a deacon that they are not to be given too much wine. Too much wine can be harmful to you. You ever got hurt on too much of God's love? Have you got, ever got sick because you had too much of the love of God? <laughs> I don't think so. You can't get too much of the love of God. And his love is on display, my friends, in his word. His love is on display. Not only does it define what the love of God is, it's on display. When you see the fact that God was willing to send his son into this world, what love is that? What did he see when he sent his son into this world? He saw foul, corrupt, wretched sinners. That's what he saw, and he sent his son to die for them. That's why Paul said, For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 
The fact he would take on human nature. Read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and his life was the light of men. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. But he came anyway. I've said this to you before. I'm going to say it again this morning. Whenever I go somewhere, if I knew before I left that where I was going, they would despise me and reject me, I wouldn't go. I just wouldn't go. Jesus Christ knew before he ever left heaven's pure world, he would come down here to a wretched people who would despise him and reject him and know him not, and he came anyway. I tell the folks down in middle Georgia, when I go down there preaching, they know I love them because I have to go through Atlanta to get to them. Anybody willing to go through Atlanta, my friends, must love the people they're going to see on the other side. <laughs> and then I endure Atlanta coming back because I got a people up here I love very dearly. <laughs> so I'm willing to go through Atlanta to get back up here. You know, Georgia don't even really claim Atlanta, I don't think anyway. But anyway, that's another story. Jesus Christ is willing to endure. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning the first verse. Wherefore, seeing we incompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and these sin that does so easily beset us, looking at Jesus Christ, who the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and set down the right hand of the majesty on high. What did he do? He endured. He endured the cross. And he despised the shame. Does that not have love written all over it? How that Christ would come and take upon himself human nature and live for 33 and a half years and walk among sinful men, have contact with sinners in this world and be despised and rejected and wind up being nailed to a cross. Do you not see love in the ordinances of the church and baptism? When somebody's baptized, they're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. And they're put down beneath the water and they're raised back up from the water. That's the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you not see love written all over that gospel ordinance? You're baptized in the name of the Father who loved you before time ever began, loved you as he loved his Son, Jesus Christ. You're baptized in the name of the Son who came in this world and redeemed you and justified you and reconciled you and laid down his life for you. And you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit who sometime in times past born you of the Spirit of God, raised you from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ. Do you not see love written all over that? And we come time to the communion. And we have the unleavened bread and the wine on this table right here that symbolizes the perfect Life of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sinless nature and the blood uh, represented by the wine, his, his sinless nature and that as well. And yet we see them separated. And we see before that bread ever got to this plate, it had to grow, the grain had to grow in the field and then the machines came and they cut the grain down. And then uh, we find the grain is separated from the chaff and the grain is crushed and then the grain is baconed. All that's a picture of the sufferings of Christ. I see love written all over that. And that wine has to be plucked from the vine. Where where, where did the uh, grapes come to begin with? It came from the hand of God in creation. And those grapes are plucked from the vine. And then those grapes have to be crushed. 
and go through the fermenting process. All that's a picture of the sufferings of Christ. It comes then, we have the wine to represent his pureness and the perfection of his life in this world. I see love written all over that. And then when we bow down and wash the feet of the Lord's children, the washing of the saints' feet, read John chapter 13 carefully and see how the master girded himself with a towel and he poured water in a basin. And the master knelt down and washed the feet of the servants. The creator bowed down and washed the feet of the creature. The savior of sinners bowed down and washed the feet of sinners. And the king of kings and lord of lords bowed down and washed the feet of the subjects of the kingdom. I see love written all over that. Do you? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For his love is better than wine. Wine can be scarce, but the love of God is plentiful. The love of God is plentiful. Now I'd like to just think for just a short period of time as we begin to work toward a conclusion, a conclusion here this morning. Some of the people in the Bible that I think would fit this description that would have such a desire within their heart to have a fresh discovery of the love of Christ. I really believe every single day that we live, we rise from the bed every single morning, we ought to be very thankful and, and, and desire a fresh discovery of the love of Christ that day. That we might say, let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth, for his kisses are sweet or better than wine. I believe every single day presents an opportunity for a new and fresh discovery, manifestation of this wonderful love of Christ. And we would have such a desire as the, as the bridegroom did here, or the bride rather to the bridegroom. I think about Simeon in Luke chapter 2 who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was waiting for the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the Son of God to come into this world and what a blessing he had. When revealed unto him, he should not see death till he had seen the Lord's Christ. And Mary and Joseph come in there with Jesus as a little baby. And they hand him to Simeon. Simeon got to see the Lord's Christ, but he got to hold the Lord's Christ. He got to embrace the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine that? You know, everybody wants to hold the baby, right? <laughs> now, mothers aren't crazy about everybody holding the baby because they just don't like husbands being so rigid and so everything, they're afraid to go and drop them. But everybody wants to hold the baby. Here, Simeon's holding the baby of babies, I guess I'll say it that way. Holding the Lord Jesus Christ, his Savior in his arms, holding God. Here's man holding God. Here's a sinner holding his Savior. The same time that Simeon is holding Christ, we find Christ holding him in the palm of his hand, according to John chapter 10. I can see Simeon being one of these, say, Lord, or let him kiss me the kiss of his mouth, for his kisses are, are better than wine. And then we read about Anna, who was a, a widow of eight, a fourscore and four years old. That's 84 years. And she was constantly in the temple of God, fasting and praying and worshiping God and giving thanks. I can see her filling this role, can't you? And then we find the sinner woman 
in Luke chapter 7, when there was a Pharisee who invited Jesus home with him for a meal. And this sinner woman comes up behind the Lord Jesus Christ and she begins to cry. She begins to weep so, so profusely that she's able to actually wash his feet with the tears that came from her eyes and take the hair of her head and to wipe them dry. You'll notice in this story, she never says a word. Never says a word. But did she not speak volumes? Did she not have a message? Did she not declare her love for Christ? To cry to the point there's enough tears to wash somebody's feet and then take your own glory and dry his, dry his feet with and then anoint his feet and kiss his feet. The Lord told her to go home for thy faith hath made thee hold. I can understand where Mary Magdalene went to the sepulchre early that day. She'd had seven devils, to, you know, cast out of her. I could see her saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For his kisses are better than wine. I can see Mary, the mother, excuse me, I can see Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus why she was sitting at the feet of Jesus to hear his word. I can see that. I can see why Mary would take a, a very expensive box of ointment, a alabaster box of ointment, and break it and anoint the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, displaying her love for him. No words are said, and yet volumes are spoken, aren't they? And then the mother of Jesus, after having a conversation with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth reminding her what the angel already told her, that she was favored among women, she was highly blessed among women, and what she was, she was carrying, the Son of God, the Holy Ghost had overshadowed her. She had conceived of the Holy Spirit of God. She's going to bring forth the Son of God. And Mary just cries out in verse 37, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For his kisses are better than wine. How about you this morning? How do you feel about it? <laughs> his love is far superior to us than our love is to him. But how we should do the best we can to live our life unto him and to see him as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. See him as altogether lovely. This, this verse here to me sets the entire tone for the book of the Song of Solomon. I, I had, um, believe it or not, I got behind a couple of days in my Bible reading. And I got to the Song of Solomon, and I wind up by reading through chapter 6, but I just went on through chapter 7, chapter 8. I just read it all at one time, and how it seemed like it blessed me as much or more than any time I'd ever read it before in my life, and that was at least the 40th time that I read it. <laughs> the Lord just blessed me with a good day. <laughs> he just blessed me to have a good day in reading that, and I believe put that verse on my mind so heavy. That's what I want to try to speak about to you this morning, about thy love. Let him kiss me 
with the kisses in his mouth. Thy love is better than wine. I was told this morning, Sister Carolyn Brown told me that she and Brother Terry had already finished reading the Bible for the year. Here we are, August 30th. And that Brother Terry was already in Genesis. <laughs> it's not as hard to read the Bible all the way through as you think. I mean, if they've got it all read in the first eight months of the, of the year, you still got four months to go. So I encourage you to do so. No matter how many times you may have read it, read it again. Make it part of your daily life. And may we be like the bride was to the bridegroom here. Again, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For thy love, thy love is better than wine.